Agriculture Update for Friday, September 4th. My name is Trisha Wagner. I am the Jackson County UW Extension Agriculture Agent, and I am the host for this week, and I'm also sitting here with Master Gardeners in Jackson County, Ron Gasowski. And so we will start with a county roll call to see which counties are online. Why don't we start with counties A through J. Anybody on? Columbia County's here. Brown County's here. Dane County. Claire County. A through M. Marquette County's on. Milwaukee County. M through W. Portage County. Winnebago. Pierce County. Pierce County. Next up is any county reports, information on specific weather issues, phenological events, past issues, etc. from anybody that's online. We can start again, A through J. Okay, I'll start from here, from Brown County. For the past few days, we've been getting a lot of calls regarding to tomato late blight. We have three confirmed locations in Brown County which have reported late blight incidents, one in the northern part of the county, another one in the southern part of the county. Yesterday, I got a sample of a late blight infection from a gardener from his tomatoes and potato field. So it looks like it might have been quite widespread in our county. The grower in the southern part of the county, she lost more than 2,000 tomatoes to late blight infection. There was a press release regarding to this late late infection in my county, and many home gardeners are concerned about it. They're bringing samples. So far, most of them are related to early blight, but we've been getting a lot of calls regarding to late blight infection. And also, we did have a sample of potted wing drosophila ID from one of the home gardeners who has been harvesting some fall-bearing raspberry. And a few other calls regarding lawn renovation practices like seeding and when to apply my fall application of lawn fertilizers, those kind of things. That's pretty much about it. Thanks, Vijay. Anybody else? A through J. This is Eau Claire County. I just had my first report of spotted wing drosophila yesterday through an email from a grower who is pretty sure they have it. We had a call from the news station. We did a little tiny blip on why some trees are already doing some color changes and I just associated it with those are the more stressed trees than the rest that aren't changing yet. The gnats have been pretty bad in some areas in this county, and hardly any Japanese beetle to be spoken of again. Last year was the same, so hopefully every year now we won't have infestation of Japanese beetles anymore. And the weather's pretty hot here, the 80s and 90s, and we'll finally see a cool down next week. That's all I have. Okay, we can go on J through M. Kenosha, this is Barb. I would say nothing new and different. Continues, of course, like every place else in the state, to be very warm to hot, and we're seeing spotty thunderstorms, so some areas are getting rain and some aren't. Getting a number of bees in quotation mark calls, so mostly yellow jackets and other kinds of wasps. Continues a good year for the weed ID kinds of things, and we're starting to get what I would call fall questions. Things like, when can I divide my perennials? When can I start pruning my trees? We did have a beautiful case of rust on hawthorn come in this week, and quite a few calls on the little critters. So the things like, I have holes in my lawn, I have little holes in the bed, so things like the chipmunks and the ground squirrels and the voles and those kinds of questions. And that's about it here. This is Sharon in Milwaukee County, and I also don't have a lot to report, except that powdery mildew on squash 
Normally we would see that in mid-July, early August, and within the last week, a plant I have at the Fox 6 Garden has turned completely white. <laughs> so it's here, the conditions are finally just right for it, but it's been a good year so far. Japanese beetles, we still have quite a few at our Fox 6 Garden. I thought that they were decreasing, but it seems like they're increasing again. We do have a lot of moths and butterflies and pollinators around a lot of the flowers, and also mosquitoes are out, and I believe I saw Virginia creeper with good fall color on it, but other than that, it is all the premature fall coloration of stressed trees that we're seeing. And that's about it. This is Lisa Marquette. I would echo some of the things that Sharon and Barb were talking about. In addition, in our area, we've had a couple of light rain showers, and so with getting the cool temperatures at night and dew on the grass, some of the lawns are starting to green back up because they had went dormant for quite some time, so those are starting to come back now. had a couple of questions on winged ants, and as PJ told me, that was the right time of year for that, so not a surprise there. question on disposing of lighted tomato plants, and also had a question about squash seeds that somebody had planted from a store-bought plant and were not true to type and had to do some explaining about how that could potentially happen. So that's what I have. Heather from Marathon, about the same as everybody else. We're just starting to get the Japanese beetles coming in a little bit later, I think, than other people in the state. But weather here have been dry up until about this week when we've been getting some shattered rainstorms, had some hail the other day. So other than that, yeah, about the same as what other people are seeing. Okay, the rest of our counties, anybody else have a report? This is Ann from Outagamie County. I just wanted to share that we had 0.4 inches of rain in the last storm a couple days ago. And what I've been seeing in the office is a lot of questions about late blight due to the news story that was on TV a couple of days ago. So everybody is bringing in their tomatoes to have me check them. I found brown rot on plums. It was a beautiful sample just covered with the fungus. A question about soil quality. Someone had their soil tested for the quality of the soil, and I just had a question about how soil is regulated in the state, if we ever get around to it. I have also been getting more fall-type questions, like how am I going to store my carrots and beets? And then there was one woman who called in saying that she had jumping worms in her garden. She lives about a mile from where jumping worms were found last year, and she's very devastated by that. And that's all I have for Outagamie County. This is Walt in Portage County. We've been pretty busy with late blight in the county this last week or so, probably three or more confirmed cases, mostly in the east and northeastern part of the county. And also, like what Lisa said, we've got some calls coming in on flying ants, and folks are just backing them up in the house. We have not had much rain, but it's been foggy and humid and hot. Most of the tomatoes that don't have late blight have some septoria or early blight. I had one call on turf problem that turned out to be necrotic ring spot. Last week there was a service berry tree that had cedar apple rust. And just another note, Portage County Fair is going on this weekend, so take a trip and come up to Rossolt and enjoy yourself. This is Diana in Pierce County, and we continue to get rain. We had another several-inch rain this week. We're seeing a lot of aphids, especially on milkweed. 
The gnats, like Erin mentioned, have been horrible. People are having trouble working outside. I know a few years ago, Phil said that normally the gnats are more of an issue in the spring, but that there was a species in the Eau Claire area that would be out all year and into the fall, and I think they have spread from you, Erin, over to our area as well, because we've been getting a lot of complaints about that. Lots and lots of tomato questions. Why aren't they turning red? Why are they this? Why are they that? And several suspected cases of late blight, so that's over here as well. Lots of weed and plant ID questions, especially if some of these weeds have gotten quite large. Insect ID questions, and then, as Barb had mentioned, the kind of fall questions. Is it time to start treating for Creeping Charlie? Is it time to divide and move things? Can I prune? That sort of thing. So general stuff in that regard. That's it. This is Kim in Winnebago. Don't really have a whole lot to add to what everyone else is saying, getting the typical calls on how to control invasives, tree questions, primarily still getting the questions about galls and chlorosis. Starting to get some of the fall questions about how do you tell when pears and apples are right. A lot of insect ID for insects within the home and bees. And then some other evergreen disease questions have been popping up. The other thing is that that news article on late blight has caused a lot of people to call here in a panic about if their tomatoes have late blight when in reality it's probably something else. So that's about all we've had. Okay, if there's no other counter reports, we'll see if there's any specialists on the line that have a report. PJ, are you on? I am here, yes. So a lot of the things I'm going to touch on were mentioned by folks already this week in particular. And actually starting over the weekend, I started getting a barrage of emails about swarming ants. And it is a time of the year that some of our ants really like to swarm, especially warm afternoons or early in the evenings when it's sunny outside. In most of those cases, and in the cases where I've gotten physical samples, they ended up being a species we call cornfield ants that tend to make small nests in lawns and other areas. The little anthills might be three or so inches across. When it comes to the swarming, though, this is going to be a temporary thing. Things should run their course, and the ant activity should die down fairly soon, within a, a week or so, if it hasn't died down already. If they do end up sneaking indoors accidentally, the best thing to do at this point is just take out the vacuum cleaner and suck them up. Another thing that's been popping up indoors, and it is something that occurs this time of year, foreign grain beetle, which is technically a stored product pest, but it can be strongly associated with new construction because as the framing is outside during construction, rain, snow gets on, a little bit of mold develops, the beetles are attracted to that, then the drywall and siding go up, and this time of year, those beetles start coming out from the wall voids. They're not going to harm anything, so it's not overall much of a concern but it can be very alarming when they show up in large numbers. In most cases, once we get into heating season, we run a dehumidifier to help dry things out. Those wall voids are going to dry out, and the beetles are going to disappear on their own. But if you are getting any cases of really tiny brownish beetles, maybe an eighth inch long or so, and especially if it's from a newly constructed home or a home that has had some recent renovation, it's most likely foreign grain beetle, and things should kind of run their course within a month or two as things dry out. Occasionally we do get cases where they persist in the house for longer than a year. Some other things outside, still getting a lot of cases of yellow jackets and paper wasps. We should still be seeing those for a while because they're kind of at the peak of their season, but as we get into October and we get a couple of hard frosts, their colonies should be dying out. 
Another thing that should also be dying out, Japanese beetles. I believe it was Sharon mentioned that at one of their gardens, they're still seeing some decent activity, but overall across the state from reports I've been getting, it seems like they are finally kind of dying down for the year. One thing that has been popping up though on milkweed, there's an insect called a milkweed bug or a milkweed seed bug. And one of the species, the large milkweed bug has been popping up left and right. I've been getting a lot of cases, especially in the last two weeks. These somewhat resemble box elder bugs, except they tend to be more of an orange and black color instead of a red and black, which the box elder bugs are red and black. Overall, they're really not going to harm the milkweed plants a whole lot. Technically, they do feed on the sap from those plants, but I've seen milkweed plants completely loaded with these insects up on the pods or on the leaves, and the plants seem nonetheless for the wear Occasionally, if you have milkweed in a garden, these same insects might wander onto other plants. I had some reports on cannas, witch hazel, and one or two other plants. I've never heard of them ever causing significant damage to the other plants or milkweed for that matter. So one of these things that is popping up and to be aware of, but overall not much of a concern. Speaking of box elder bugs, I really haven't gotten any reports or seen any, I think because it's been a fairly wet year. The fungal disease that keeps them in check might have popped up, so it's been pretty quiet on the box elder bug front, but who knows, that could change fairly soon as they start trying to sneak in in the fall. And along those lines, I have seen myself and had one or two reports of western conifer seed bugs, which are another one of these fall invaders. I've seen them on my back screen porch sliding door trying to get into the house already. So that's all that I have for the insect side of things. Are there any questions for me? Does that milkweed seed bug then just destroy the viability of the seed? Well, if you had a lot of them feeding on a seed pod, they may be able to perhaps reduce the viability of the seeds or perhaps reduce the number of seeds. But from what I've seen, I've seen plants that are completely loaded with those insects and the seed pods still seem pretty full and seem to be producing lots of seeds. Thank you. Any other specialists on today's? I'll jump in with what I've been seeing in the clinic. Actually, interesting samples this week. We had a filbert come in, actually, a Harry Lauder's walking stick, which is a contorted filbert, which had eastern filbert blight. It's a fungal disease where the pathogen forms these very large clusters of fruiting bodies. They almost look like scale insects on the branches and cause a lot of dieback. It's very difficult to manage once the tree becomes infected. Basically, you have to prune it out, but talking to a graduate student here in our department who's worked with this disease, once the tree is infected, probably the tree will decline and eventually die from the disease because it takes about two years for you to really see fruiting bodies of the fungus. So you've got a lot of infections on the tree that you can't see. In addition, we've been seeing some vascular wilt disease, and certainly vert wilt on ash, Dutch helm disease, oak wilt, and then interesting red bud. Usually when I get red bud into the clinic, I suspect Verticillium wealth, but in this particular case, the client sent me in a little black fruiting structure, which is something called dead man's fingers. We actually have a fact sheet on this. The fruiting body of a fungus called Xylaria, and this is a root rot organism that tends to come in on trees that are under a lot of stress. In terms of other issues that we've been seeing on fruit crops, bacterial canker, which is a bacterial disease that occurs on stone fruits, and I've seen that on cherry also seen it on peach this week, and then I do see it occasionally on plum. And it was very interesting, and I think you mentioned the brown rot on plum. I had some photos that came in of that. Very classic, the kind of buff-colored fuzz on the fruits, and eventually those will mummify. 
and you need to really be careful to get rid of those mummified fruits over the wintertime because that's typically where the fungus hangs out. It can also cause slight branch tip dieback, and it can survive in the branches as well, so those need to be pruned. In terms of any other interesting diseases, first basil downy mildew sample came in yesterday from Milwaukee County, and then we had some carrots that came in where the leaves were totally blighted, a little fungal disease called Cercospora leaf blight. We've been seeing downy mildew again, this time a melon sample from Dane County. And then, of course, we've been seeing late blight this week's list of counties, Brown, Dodge, Portage, and Wood County. And that's about it. Any questions from anyone? We've seen downy mildew on basil down here in Dane County. That doesn't surprise me. I know it's been around. This is the first sample that anybody has submitted to the clinic. It's actually over at Eagle Heights Community Garden near Mm -hmm. campus and then a couple other locations that Lisa mentioned. Sometimes I've seen it at the Allen Centennial Garden as well. Brian, this is Walt. Did you find anything about that odd bacteria on the cube that I sent down? That was actually a fungal pathogen. It wasn't bacterial. Yeah, and that's reported this week as well. The cucumber had very discrete lesions on it, fairly large. There were some areas where there was just some necrosis of the tissue, but there were other areas where there were very discrete spots. And what was sporulating in there was a fungus called Hementosporium, and that particular fungus is not really well documented as a pathogen on cucurbits. There certainly are some reports, but they're relatively old, a lot of them coming out of Europe. So we're actually following up on that. We're trying to culture that particular fungus, and then what we'll do is attempt to do Cux postulates on it to see whether we can get it to infect. But certainly based on the pattern of sporulation in the dead tissue, it looks as though that's what was causing the browning of the tissue. So that was what was going on with that particular sample. Any other questions or comments for Brian? Okay, well, thank you, Brian and PJ as well. And we will move on with our special guest. We have Sharon Morrissey, the consumer horticulture agent for Milwaukee County UW Extension. Sharon is also the program coordinator for the Horticulture and Urban Agriculture Program. We are delighted to have her on today to speak with us about straw barrel gardening and gardening in tight spaces. Sharon did send an email this morning with a slide set. Hopefully everyone has access to that here today. And without further ado, Sharon, thank you. Sure, you're welcome. Thanks to all of you who are attending today. I was kind of concerned when I scheduled this because of it being the Friday before Labor Day and thinking that many people might be gone. But I appreciate all of you tuning in to hear what I have to say about straw bale gardening and gardening in other tight places. It was kind of Brian's reference, and I have done some work on gardening in small spaces. So what I sent you was a slide presentation on straw bale gardening. It's very rudimentary. It has the information there, but not a lot of slides. In preparation for this, it finally inspired me to put all of my photos onto an external hard drive, and from there I intended to be able to sort everything out beautifully like I've wanted to do for years, but I have problems viewing what's on the external hard drive and on my computer now. So the photos that you have in the slide presentation are the only ones that I could get off of my photos because I've been straw bale gardening at my garden at Fox 6 Studios for a couple of years now along with the Master Gardeners. So I sent you that. I also sent two fact sheets that are from Washington State University and also from University of West Virginia. And there's also one from Florida I have on straw bale gardening. 
So there are several sources of extension information out there on straw bale gardening. I don't know if we can really call it research-based information because I don't know how much it's been researched, but it's been done and sort of a system worked out. I also just sent two brochures that I've produced with the assistance of my Master Gardener volunteers, one on small space, small budget vegetable gardening, and the other on container gardening. So hopefully those will be useful to you. Feel free to use them. And if we have a little time at the end, we may talk a little bit about the small space, small budget vegetable gardening. So starting with the presentation on straw bale gardening, first of all, why garden in straw bales? And I guess I'd like to find out if other people have been trying this technique. So let's take a minute for people to kind of chime in and say yes or no if you've tried straw bale gardening. We have straw bale gardens in the teaching garden around our building this year. And where is that? In Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Eau Claire, okay. Yep. I've done straw bale gardening at my house for the last two years, but we're also doing a little bit of a trial at the teaching garden in Racine this year as well. And at one of our youth gardens where in-ground gardening wasn't possible. Anyone else? In Winnebago, I personally have not, but our ag agent, Daryl McCauley, has an interest in this and has been doing straw bale gardening and has been doing some presentations on it. Okay. Yeah, it's certainly a topic that you hear about, and I think it's in the popular press. And they've also had the author of the only book I know of on it, Joel Karsten, on the Larry Mueller show before, and he's done presentations around the state and elsewhere. So I think people are aware of it and wonder, well, what is it and why would you do it? This slide sort of addresses that, and Patty mentioned when you have bad soil or poor soil that you can't really garden in or it's difficult to garden in because it's so heavy, that's a great reason to do straw bale gardening. It's also a good way to put a garden in a spot where you have the proper conditions. If you don't have a lot of sunlight and you really don't have a bed or can't make a bed where there is a good sunlight exposure for vegetables, straw bale gardening is very portable. You can put it wherever you want it to be. And also, the advantage over container gardening is that you don't have to buy containers or soil. You just buy the straw bales. And depending on what sources you have and what you can find, you might pay $5 a bale, and that's a pretty good deal compared to several bags of soil that would be required for the same volume as a bale of straw plus the container. So it can be cheaper, too, to do straw bale gardening. And I think one of the big draws is that it is accessible. So you don't have to be able to kneel. You don't have to be able to bend over. You don't have to work the soil if you have back issues. So there's a lot of advantages there. You could sit at a straw bale or even just the fact that you don't have to bend over as far or you don't have to kneel makes it kind of accessible. The next slide is a picture of some of our master gardeners planting our straw bales. I believe this was two years ago, maybe more. And these are brand new straw bales, and I want to make a couple of points with this slide. First of all, they are bending over, and it's that kind of halfway bent over thing that can sometimes be more uncomfortable than being all the way bent over. So this would be a good opportunity to sit, to garden. You'll notice that we have these straw bales around two half whiskey barrels that have blueberry plants in them. And we set it up like that so that the straw bales could double as the winter protection for our blueberry plant each year. 
so that has worked out very well. We have bales on three sides during the summer, and then there's a pathway on the other side, so in the winter we put another bale around the other side. And then we put some straw over the top of that, and voila, we have our winter protection for the blueberries. So that's worked out pretty well. We may come back to this slide in a minute, but let's move on to the next one. The extension resources I already mentioned, I hope that you have downloaded those or will download those and follow the directions in those fact sheets. They're just one page or two sides of one page fact sheets. And then that book I was mentioning by Joel Karsten, The Straw Bale Gardening, A Complete Guide to Growing in Bales Without Soil or Weeds. And you're not totally without soil, as you'll see, and you're not totally without weeds either, but it is certainly a lot easier and a lot less of each of those required. So what we're going to cover now are the steps to straw bale gardening, the most important ones being how to lay out the bales and conditioning the bales, and then a couple of techniques for planting the bales. So when you decide on the place that you're going to put the straw bales for your garden, it helps if it's level. We do have one area at our Fox 6 garden that's on quite a slope, and especially this year we found the real difficulties of gardening in that site. So a more level spot is probably a little easier to work with. The configuration, you can do pretty much whatever you want, but it does help to be able to have bales end-to-end. -end. If you were to try and make a circle out of them so that you have a wedge-shaped base open between each bale as you made it around the circle, they would probably dry out faster, and they don't have the support of each other at the ends as much. But lots of squares, zigzaggy lines, you can do straight rows as we have it around the containers. The other straw bale garden we have is in the shape of a T, so a couple of bales across one end and then a straight line perpendicular to that. What's more important, though, is how you lay down the bales. And I made this mistake the first year I did straw bale gardening because I didn't have any instructions. I was just going by hearsay. And that is to not put the strings on the ground. So you lay the bales so that the strings are exposed so they don't rot and fall apart, and then the bales fall apart as well. And then cut side up. I don't know how they make straw bales. But when you get a bale of straw, if you set it on its side with the strings exposed, and you look at one side, and if you flip it over and look at the other side, it'll be really obvious which is the cut side. And that's where I'd like to go back to that first photo of the Master Gardener volunteers. If you go back to slide number three, the bale on the left in the front of the half whiskey barrels is with the cut side up, and the one to the right is not. So it becomes very obvious on the cut side that the stems of the wheat straw is really going straight up and down. And that allows water to penetrate into the bale a lot easier. And it'll be a lot easier to make spaces to plant in too. So going back to slide number six, having end posts that is to have, we just use old pieces of conduit pounded into the ground at the ends of the bales. If you put two or three bales together end to end, then you only need to have really one post at each end of the three bales. If you went beyond three bales, I would suggest having another post in the middle, especially if you're going to allow those posts to double as your support. But those posts are there in case the string does break and to hold the bales together nice and tight so you don't have air space in between and to keep those bales in position. 
And then drip irrigation is a real advantage because it does take a while to water and get the water down into the bales. And this way you can just turn on the drip irrigation and allow it to run for a period of time. We did put on drip irrigation. We used soaker hoses turned upside down into the bales. But since we're not at the gardens for very long and we can't run the water in the hose, as well as the soaker hose at the same time, we usually just water it by hand. But in a home setting or something where you're closer to the garden where you can just turn it on and let it go, it would be a good way to water the bales. So any questions so far about laying the bales out and getting the garden started? All right, well then we'll move on to conditioning. And this is a critical step because the idea is that you have this fresh wheat straw, a very high carbon source, and you need to get that to start to break down so that it creates a medium in which plant roots can form and grow. And moisture can be held for those roots and nutrients can be released for those roots. So the conditioning process is to speed up that decomposition inside the bale. The recommended sequence for that is to wet the bales very thoroughly for three days. So the first three days, you water them really, really thoroughly. And you'll notice as you're watering them, they'll be what Joel Karsten calls water slides. So as you start to water, the water will find a route through the bale and start coming out right away. You may need to poke something in there, shift that around so that that water slide, that little route is disturbed, and then the water goes more into the bale than coming out of the bale. So thoroughly watering and wetting the bales the first three days. After that, the next three days, you start applying high amounts of nitrogen. Using urea is a good, fast way to go. It's 46% nitrogen, all very readily available. You use a half a cup per bale, sprinkle it over the top of the bale, and water that in really well. And as you water it in, you'll see that the granules of urea go down into the bale, and that's how I know when you've washed it in as well as you need to. You can make this a more organic start to the garden by using an organic fertilizer, but as you know, the nitrogen content is going to be quite a bit lower and less available. You may need to, I think it's a time six factor that's used to determine how much approximately, but you can just do the math on the 46% nitrogen, but that doesn't make it more fast release or more available. So I haven't tried it that way, but... Um. Sharon? Yeah. I have some experience to relay from some master gardeners who did. One of them used blood meal, and it did work. She had to use a lot, but it stank to high heaven, and it attracted a lot of flies. The other person used, I think it was soy meal and something else, and it apparently stank up their whole neighborhood to mm. the that somebody thought that there was a decomposing body in the woods and wanted to mount a search party. And so there have been some reports that perhaps the organic route needs a little bit of tweaking. Yeah, it would be good to get some real recommendations on what's best to use or good to use and then quantities. And the breakdown is going to be determined by how much water, the temperature, and all that. So, yeah, that's very, very good information, Lisa. Thank you. Is adding that urea a half a cup for each day or just for those three days? Just for those three days. And then you move on to the next three days and you add a quarter of a cup every day to each bale and water it in. So that's six days of actually applying the urea and watering it in. 
After that, you continue to water for the next two days, and really on the 11th day, you can check the bales, reach your hand into them the best you can, and see how warm they are inside. If they're not hot, you can go ahead and plant into them, and my experience has been that the bales were not too hot, so we just planted on the 11th day. I think it's been three years we've been doing this. So, are there any questions about the conditioning process? Yes, Columbia County. In Wisconsin, approximately what month and day would be the first day? Well, I don't know. There's no recommendations for specific time of the year, but I'm thinking of when you would want to start planting crops. So to have the bales ready for when you want to start planting. Now, if you're going to try and plant some of the really early season crops, say peas, in our area of the state, we would start those maybe the second week of April. And so we would have to start 11 days before that. And at that point, it's still really cold, and I'm sure that would slow down the breakdown process. But it would be worth trying and seeing if the ambient air temperature is going to make a big difference on how fast it breaks down and is ready for planting. Or will it just warm when it warms up, then the urea is still there, available decomposition speeds up, and it kind of catches up. I really don't know. Sharon, I think Joel Carson in his book recommends doing the conditioning in the fall so that things are ready for early planting in the spring. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that would be a good idea and interesting, I guess. Then you'd have to do maybe a lot more supplemental fertilizing because a lot of it would have washed away, but that would be a good idea. Karen, I have just a couple of little optional things that people might want to try, and of course this is not based on research, just me playing around in a couple of different areas, but in our teaching garden, we use all organic materials, so we've tried a lot of different types of organic fertilizers. They're not pure nitrogen sources by any stretch of the imagination, and they're not stinky, and we haven't had any problem with smells or animals, but we've used things like the general organic vegetable fertilizer, which is, I think it's actually made by miracle Grow, but it's certified organic. We've also used chickadee doo-doo, but the other one that we've used that we had a pretty good success with was the vermicompost, either by itself or with the addition of other fertilizer, just incorporating compost into the straw bales during the conditioning phase, but we found that the conditioning phase took three to four weeks to get the bales ready to plant using those organic methods. At my own house, the best success I've had is actually getting the bales in the fall, and I pick them up from my neighbors who use them for decoration, and then they put them out for the trash. So I grab those bales, and I set them up in my garden in the right orientation and water them. They sit over the winter, and then I start the fertilizer in the spring, and then I can plant early stuff in there. And those bales that sat over the winter are the ones that I've had the best success with growth. Mm. So really quite decomposed. Yes, and they stayed together nicely, but I do put them up against my little rabbit fence. So one side of them is up against the rabbit fence, but I don't use any support poles on them. Held together, okay. I've addressed my experience with that a little later, too, just the fact that the first year of the bales, they are very, very hard to open holes to plant into. I actually planted potatoes in one of the brand new straw bales and my arm was totally scratched up and painful from having reached down in there because the bales are so tight and the straw is still not very well decomposed. And then the bales the second year I've used those two one year with great success and another year this year not so much. And I have a picture of that too that they just completely all fell apart and they kind of imploded. They've caved in on themselves. 
So I think the fall is sounding like a good idea. We may try and do that with our new bales this year. So moving on to planting, you can either seed or you can transplant. For seeding, the larger seeds, you can just make individual holes and pull out a little bit of straw, put in some potting soil, put the seed in. You can put the seed directly into the bale, too. Just whatever it takes to keep that good seed-to-soil contact that you need for germination. And that's easier to do with large seeds than it is with smaller seeds. With smaller seeds, you can put some potting soil up on the top of the bales. Or the next slide shows the potting soil on top of the bales. The problem I've found with it is getting enough depth in that soil on top of the bales without washing it away when you go to water those seeds after you've planted them. And I've not been terribly successful with that. A couple of times it's worked, and a few times like this year we tried it three, four times and had no success. But if you go to the next slide, slide number 10, this is a little system that I worked out where I just took a couple of plastic flats, cut the bottoms out of them, turned them upside down, and put them over the top of the bale. And then I used my little wire row cover stakes to hold them onto the bales, and then filled those with soil and catch it down nice and tight, and it holds up a lot better because it's got the sides to keep it from washing away. So I did have a lot better success putting it this way. Planting for transplants, again, you try and make an opening large enough to get the root ball into the bale. And if you want to add some soil with it, you can, but it shouldn't really be necessary. If you pull chunks of straw out of the bale in order to make the space, I've found that sometimes those go too deep. You start pulling out a chunk, it goes much deeper than the root system, and then you have to close that gap because the root will dry out. But then you can use that straw as a mulch over the top of the area where the transplant is put in. Some quick pictures in the next one of doing it that way. Also for seeding, you can make little holes, put some soil in there, and then plant. I've done that with kale and chard and things that you would plant spaced apart versus row crops. And then the next slide is a slide of this year's disaster garden. This is the second year on these straw bales. And in the beginning, they looked great, but about halfway through the season, as I say, they started to cave in on themselves. But I still have a very, very nice broccoli plant there. The rest of the plants in there are doing pretty horribly. Some of the special needs crops, carrots, beets, turnips, parsnips, root crops, you can seed those into a straw bale garden, and they work pretty well as long as you can get the seeds to stay moist long enough and the bale is broken down enough that they can make their way through the bale. Potatoes, as I mentioned earlier, they're really hard to do on brand new straw bales, but I find that they're much easier to do on this two-year-old bales, and last year I was very successful with that. This year I'm going to pull those potatoes on Monday. The next picture, that's the two-year-old straw bales with potatoes I planted into them this spring. They grew beautifully, and they're now ready to harvest, but in the meantime those bales have almost completely fallen apart. And maintenance, just the only thing is the drip irrigation is helpful, but otherwise you can just water by hand. And the support, the end posts make it nice if you've got tall end posts, and then you can do the Florida weave for tomatoes works out well because it's hard to use tomato cages in the straw bales. We found that they fall over real easily, so you end up using stakes per plant, or you can put end posts and then weave the twine in between the plants and hold them up that way. Pests, slugs. You can't forget that you're going to end up with slugs in these things. 
I forgot that this year, and before I knew it, everything had holes in them. So we used Sluggo and Problem Solved. But you do have to get on top of that real quickly. And some minor irritations, you will have a lot of mushrooms growing, and they're pretty yucky and slimy and nasty, but they aren't causing any problem. And then also, if you have any wheat seeds or oat seeds left in the straw, you will have those growing, and you can either let them grow, you can pull them out, you can cut them off. In Joel Carson's book, he recommends taking a mop and some vinegar and then running it over the straw bales to kill off the weeds. Questionable. And then at the end of the season, just sanitation and use them again next year, maybe. And in that picture, the one on the left is where my potatoes are right now. And those two black lines you're seeing are the soaker hoses that were sitting across the top of the bale. So that bale has now fallen over and is in pretty bad shape. So we'll see on Monday what that ends up looking like. But it is great already partially or largely composted organic matter that could be worked into your beds in the fall. And then because it's so decomposed by the spring, I'm sure that would be in pretty good shape. Or you can use it as a soil amendment or you can add it to your compost pile. So it's a resource that's very useful and you use it all up. I think it's a good, fun way, an interesting way. I don't think it's 100% reliable. I guess no vegetable garden is 100% reliable. But I find we do have more success in our ground beds. But it is fun to try things and see what's going to work. So I think I'll stop there. Any other comments? I appreciated the input from everyone on their experiences with straw bale gardening, and I know we'll have more of that as time goes on and we all give it a try. This is Erin. Like you said, Sharon, I don't know anything about how they cut straw and stuff, but they apparently put a chemical on it first to kill it off and then cut it. Does anybody know if that's true and if that would affect growing plants? No, that's not true, Erin. The straw is when they harvest oats, so the oats mature early in the year, and then the plant dies. It's an annual plant, basically. So they take off the seed head, and then the stems are what's left, and that's what straw is. So they don't spray it or kill it off or anything. And it's just the baler that cuts the end like that when it picks up the straw and bales it into there. It's just John Deere and International Harvester and Ford New Holland and stuff. It's just how the machine packs them together and sticks the twine on them. So it's the same machine and stuff that bales my horse's hay. And there's just always one cut end for how it packs it in there when it makes the bale. I would comment, though, that I would question the source of your straw because it could be that a grower might be using some sort of broadleaf herbicide in production. I would definitely check about that because if there are residues remaining, then that might be an issue for certain types of vegetables like tomatoes. I've seen situations where straw has been used as a mulch, and there have been residues that have caused issues in that situation. And that's a really good point. In most cases, like farmers around here, when they do oats, they seed oats and alfalfa at the same time, so it's when they're planting a new alfalfa field. And then the oats is kind of a nurse crop, and the alfalfa comes in later after the oats are gone. But if they're using it as a cover crop, they might be doing something like Brian mentioned. But depending on your source, you may or may not be able to even ask that question. If you're just buying it from a local garden center or something, they may not know. Yes, but I could see a lot of people wanting to know if they're organic bales of straw. So I guess that's a question we need to keep asking and trying to find out more about the processes that are used in producing it. Good. Anything else? 
Well, that's all I have. Thanks again so much for coming and listening, and I apologize I didn't have more pictures of successful things in my straw bale garden, but these failures are instructive too, right? Sharon, I had one question. You mentioned that you think your in-ground garden is more successful than your straw bales. Did I hear that right? Yes, yes. Well, I think we see that all the time, the gardening fad, whether it's one thing or another, everybody's looking for something new to try. And I think it's great that it gets people interested in gardening, and that's a good thing. But it takes a while for the cons to show up. We heard all about the pros, and eventually I think it'll calm down. But it is an interesting way to get people interested in gardening. Yeah, and I also think that Jill Carson does it on a very large scale. And so a couple of tomato plants that don't work out or a seeding of something that doesn't work out isn't that big a deal because he does a lot of seeding of that crop. But if you're doing just a small amount, I've got six bales around my half whiskey barrels, and I've put a wide assortment of crops in there, but you have to leave enough room between your tomato and your pepper, and that's about all you can fit in one bale. And this year, neither one of them did anything, and so it's a total bust. So I think people are going to get disappointed by that pretty quickly. Does anybody know of any actual research that's going on anywhere? No, I haven't heard of any. I think one of the fact sheets that I sent to y'all was about a extension person who had been doing straw bale gardening for years, and I can't remember if it was in West Virginia or Washington State. And so this was another extension agent who just wanted to write it up about this guy's experience with it. Not really research again, but just doing it for several years. But it would be interesting to find out if anybody is really researching it and coming up with better ways to do it. I think you're absolutely right, though. It's kind of a fad, and there are lots and lots of variables. I think one of the hardest ones is getting things planted so that they have a good medium to grow in. I found this year as I pulled out the straw, I made these great big deep wells, and then I'd try and transplant something into it, and I know that there's another six inches of empty space below that plant, so then I have to fill that back up. So, a lot of variables. (laughs) I have somebody who called our horticulture helpline, and we provided them with all the extension materials that you gave us and Joel Karsten's book, and the person said they followed the directions and they didn't get any produce and they want more information from somebody who has experience, and I haven't tried it here because I consider it to be a fad. Yeah. So that you have to put a lot of water and a lot of fertilizer would seem to me to be bigger inputs than I would in a pot or a raised bed or the ground for that matter. So I feel bad because I'm going to have to tell this person that I don't have anybody that has had really good experience. All the people I've talked to have not had good experience. They've had failures, so I don't know what to do. Oh, you know, I think there probably are a lot of failures. And like Sharon said, there are just a huge number of variables that haven't been explored. But keeping all of that in place, I also think that certain types of vegetable plants do better in straw bales than others. And so just from the limited experience that I've had with them in a number of different locations and with different types of straw bales and blah, 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 the squash do beautifully. The vining crops, the zucchini, the summer squash, they grow really well in straw bales and have, for me, produced really well. The tomatoes, the peppers, we did broccoli, we've done all sorts of interesting things, not as much success. So I think that there is some potential there to make this a very useful kind of planting scheme for some people. 
but I agree that it probably is a novelty and a fad to some extent. Well, the research I would like to see would be nutrient runoff because you do put a lot of fertilizer in there. And then I think in Joel's book he says to water until water runs out of the bale so that you are sure that it's well soaked. And I have seen straw bales where the grass for a stream downhill is super, super green, and eventually that's hitting the gutters and the storm sewers and stuff. So I have a concern about that one. And then I'd really like to see a true cost analysis of how much you pay for a bale the fertilizer costs and anything else like posts or whatever versus a container. You can get a cheap old Rubbermaid container and fill it with soil, but you can use that potting soil for many years versus one year for a straw bale, maybe two. And it would just be really interesting to see a true cost analysis because I don't know that it is cheaper in the long run. And if that's the reason that people are doing it, it'd be great to have that information. I don't necessarily agree with that, though, because if you're doing vegetables in containers, if you're not replacing the soil mix, and even if you are replacing the soil mix, there are extra nutrients that have to be added to those containers, and those have runoff as well. And so I'm not sure the research is there for the container-grown vegetables either. That's probably true, yeah. To get good productivity, you really have to put a lot of nutrients in those pots. And for me, the best success I had with the straw bales were the old straw bales where I just used compost. I fertilized one time, and I had huge production of squash. It was just amazing. So I was very heartened by that and thought, well, I'm going to do all these things with all these other gardens, but it hasn't panned out with other types of vegetables. So I'm still on the fence with it, too. But I'm going to keep trying it. One of the concerns my master gardeners here in Brown County has is that the water use efficiency all master gunners don't have a soaker hose on our bale, so they have to keep watering sometimes two times a day when it gets really hot and dry. And definitely some of the plants like tomatoes and peppers, they don't perform that really well. But I agree with Patty that zucchinis and some other type of summer squash seems to be doing fairly well on a straw bale. So there's some inconsistency on what crops does better in terms of utilizing the moisture or having a more of a drought tolerant capacity in this kind of straw bale garden. But certainly water use efficiency seems to be a concern for most master gardeners. Yeah, I really haven't found that the bales dry out. Because like I say, I have my soaker hoses there. I don't use them very often, though, because they're hooked up to one water system and I lose all pressure when I use the soaker hose, then I can't water anything else. And I find that the bales hold moisture for a long time. We do a little bit of hand watering on them after they're conditioned and planted and things are growing. So I think that is less maintenance than you would have in a container, which we have to water very thoroughly. Twice a week is what we're doing with our containers, and I'm kind of pleased with that because I hear so many people say they have to water every day with containers but that's another topic for another discussion. I'm doing a little trial this year at the Fox 6 Garden, and I just call them little trials because they're certainly not scientific, but I have three containers exactly the same, three wave petunias, and I bought soil mix by the same company, one with moisture granules in it and one without, and then I used the one without in the third container, and I added soil granules according to the label directions. And we water twice a week, water them the same. They have the same exposure, the same wind exposure, sun exposure, and it's amazing how well the regular potting soil is doing without any moisture granules at all. But I do a lot of those little kinds of trials to just kind of do side-by-side things. 
Well, thank you, Sharon, for doing this and giving a good overview. It's nice to see your experiences at your garden, too, and how it's worked. Thank you for inviting me, and again, thanks to everybody for coming. If there's any other program announcement or new educational materials that anyone would like to share, we should just take a moment for that. Once again, the Portage County Fair is this weekend at Rossolt. It's through Labor Day, so it should be a good time if you can get up there. And on October 2nd, Portage County Extension is doing a workshop on invasive species, so that'll be here at the county annex, and you can call Denise here at Portage County, and she'll get you registered. I guess the announcement that I just have is next week is the last one of the season. Diana, you're on next week. Yep, and I think it'll just be evaluation and wrap-up and what worked and didn't work and suggestions for the future and that kind of thing. Okay, great. Anything else? Okay, thanks, everybody. Have a great holiday weekend.